Well, hey guys, my name is Eden Richardson. I'm the Women's Ministry Director here at First Baptist Rock Hill, and I am so excited to introduce today's online sermon to you guys. And so we're so excited to hear the message from God's Word, and we know that His Word changes our lives. And so before our pastor comes and teaches us uh, God's Word, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you so much that your word is life. God, thank you that we find joy um, from hearing your word, Lord, from being with your people, God. And so I pray that as our pastor comes, Lord, that you would use his message, Lord, um, that is your words to change our lives. And God, we thank you for what you're going to do, Lord, and we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, congratulations, graduates. Aren't you excited that on your day I'm preaching on does God ever get angry? Man, that's just what you wanted to hear today, isn't it? Well, let me begin by asking you the question. Does God ever get angry? Of course he does. The Bible talks about God's anger, God's wrath, God's judgment, God's indignation, God's vengeance. And there are a lot of people today who only want to think of God in terms of love. And the Bible does say God is love. But there are many in our culture who want to think, well, God is love, nothing but love, only love. And they reject the idea of God ever being angry. But let's think about that for a moment. What about you? If you never got angry, if others in this room, if you never, ever in your life got angry, would that be healthy of course not, because there are times when anger is justified. Think about that. And if there are times in our lives when anger is justified, why do we think it's never justified for God to be angry, for God to take vengeance, for God to have wrath and indignation? Now, a lot of times, in fact, probably most of the time, our anger is not the healthy kind. I mean, somebody hurts our feelings. We get mad. Often our anger grows out of insecurity. We, we just don't feel very confident and someone does something and it, and it just sparks that feeling of insecurity and we retaliate, we act out, we get angry. Sometimes we get angry because we're selfish. We wanted something, we didn't get it. Somebody else got it, so we're mad, we're angry. Um, maybe sometimes we get mad because our pride is injured and we're embarrassed so a lot of times in fact most of the time our anger is not a healthy anger but when the bible talks about the anger of god the wrath of god it's not like our anger god's anger is very very different you're going to see this morning that god's anger flows out of love and holiness and i hope at the end of the sermon the end of the message, you're going, to, you're going to see hope and you're going to be encouraged as a follower of Jesus. But we need to think about the anger of God because even though God's anger is different than ours, it's very real. It's very, very real. And if God's anger is real, you need to know about it. You need to understand what the Bible teaches about it. So I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the Old Testament book, the Old Testament prophet, Nahum. That was one of the passages you read in your weekly reading plan this week, the book of Nahum in your Old Testament after Micah. Now, Nahum was a prophet 
who lived more than 600 years before Jesus Christ. He was a Jew, lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, but God gave him a message for a different nation, for the nation of Assyria, whose capital was the city of Nineveh. And the Assyria, Assyria was a, a dominant military empire in that time that that conquered several other nations and they 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 what they would do is when they would conquer another nation they would destroy mo- much of it and they would deport or carry off exile many of the citizens the majority of the citizens and resettle them in a foreign land and they were cruel they were vicious. Nahum describes it, and we also know from history, for instance, when Assyria captured the Egyptian city of Thebes. In preparation for deporting the Egyptians to another country, the Assyrian soldiers took little babies and young preschool children and dashed their heads against rocks to execute them because they didn't want to deal with little kids while they were marching these, these slaves away to another place. I mean, vicious, just cruel. Well, there are places like that in the world today. There are regimes, dictators in the world today who are just as vicious. And God is angry with Nineveh. And he's going to judge her. They, they had done a similar thing to the northern kingdom of Israel about 80 years or so, maybe a century before Nahum preaches this message. They had destroyed God's people in the north, deported them and made them slaves. And so God gives Nahum this message to the Assyrian, a message of judgment. And I want you to see how it begins in chapter 1. Let me, do you have God's Word? Let me see God's Word. Raise it up. Come on, printed or electronic. Let me always bring God's Word with you to church. Okay? Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh. Your Bible may translate it the, the burden of Nineveh or the prophecy of Nineveh. The reason is we really don't have an English word for that Hebrew word. It means a a heavy message, um, a weighty message in in terms of it's it's significant and it's important, but also just just the the heaviness of it. I mean, it's not a positive message. It's not an exciting message. It's, it's, It's a hard message. And so God says, Nahum, I've got a message for the nation of Assyria and its citizens, and it's heavy. They need to hear it. But it's a hard one. It's not going to be a fun one for you to preach. And it's not going to be a fun one for them to hear. And we're going to read in these next few verses. For a lot of people today, it's not easy to hear. And for some of you, especially if you have a shallow understanding of God and of truth and of sin and of righteousness, it's not going to be easy for you to hear. But you need to hear it. He says, starting at verse 2, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves or stores up wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, from these verses and a few more that follow, I want us to look at four things, learn four things about God's anger that's that's taught in this passage. 
Because you, you don't need to go through life ignorantly. You don't need to go through life misunderstanding the truth when it comes to God and holiness and love and anger and judgment. So the first thing we, we, we learn is that this, this is a heavy message. It's a weighty one. And by the way, let me just say, anybody who preaches or teaches on the wrath of God, the judgment of God, anybody who tweets about it or writes a blog about it or talks about it, and, and, and they do it with glee, almost like a, a sense of joy, and then they're happy about it, they don't understand the heart of God. And they're not worthy of preaching this message because it's a heavy message and it should break our hearts and and what he tells us is that God's anger God's wrath is good but but the first lesson is this it grows out of it flows out of God's love and his holiness God is he's not reactionary he's not impulsive it it grows out of his love and his holiness and that is what makes God's wrath righteous wrath He's not just reactionary. Now, he begins in verse 2 by saying that God is a jealous and avenging God. And when you and I hear the word jealous, we have all these negative thoughts. Think about a boyfriend or a husband and his girlfriend or his wife just innocently speaks to another man and he gets mad. He's jealous and gets angry. That kind of jealousy grows out of either a a sense of insecurity or a a selfish need to control. And it's not healthy. There's nothing good about it. That isn't what this means when it talks about God being a jealous and avenging God. This this Hebrew word translated in our Bibles as jealous has has the idea that God is eager and, and God is zealous for us. And it shows up in two ways in God's relationship with us. It means that God is eager, God is zealous to protect us and defend us when someone wrongs us. That God is zealous to defend and protect those who belong to him and the things that belong to him. He loves them that much that he's going to notice when someone wrongs them. And his love and his holiness work together so that God says, I'm going to take vengeance. You're not going to hurt my family. You're not going to hurt my children. And be not noticed, God says. He's jealous. He's zealous toward us that way. Um, Nahum is basically saying, Assyria, your day has come. Your, your day of judgment, your day of wrath has come. Your evil, your cruelty, it's catching up with you. And today is the day there's no escape. When Assyria in 722 B.C. destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and carried the citizens away as slaves and executed citizens who were innocent of any wrong, they were doing that to God's people. And God noticed And he was patient, gave them time to repent and change, but they didn't. So Assyria, your day, your day is coming, has come, and the Lord is an avenging and wrathful God taking vengeance on his adversaries. 
the day of judgment has come because of what you've done to my people. Nahum, in his book, and we know this from history as well, described the capital Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, so cruel. He, he described them, he, he said it's like a, it's a city of blood. He said Nineveh and the Assyrians are like a, a den of lions that kill their prey and then drag those lifeless bodies back to the den to feed their young. He says that's what you do to other people and their nations and you steal all their stuff and you kill them and you make them slaves and you take all their stuff and you drag it back to your citizens, to your capital, so you all can be rich on the suffering of others. And your day of judgment has come because of the damage you have done to the people I love. Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. And that massive, powerful city in less than 20 years after Nahum preached this was obliterated by the Babylonians and remained in the dust of northern Iraq until the 1800s when archaeologists began digging it up next door to the modern city of Mosul in northern Iraq. Well, what about today? What about those who persecute God's people today? Those who oppose God and oppose the children of God and hurt those whom God loves, those who are part of his family. They need to hear. We need to hear what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 6. He said, for after all, notice this, it is only just, it is only right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, his people, and to give relief to you, his people who are afflicted and to us as well. Notice, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. See, the second coming of Jesus for those of us who love him is going to be a glorious day, an exciting day. But it won't be that for everybody. When Jesus comes back, he's described as coming back with his mighty, his powerful angels in flaming fire, a picture of judgment. He goes on to say in that passage, dealing out retribution. Retribution. Paying someone back. Rightfully so. For what they did. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Now, let, let me help you understand this. Do we have any mothers in the room? Any mothers in the room? Hey, moms, if somebody tries to hurt your baby, what do you do? That's when the mama bear comes out. And you're God's baby. You're God's children if you know Jesus and you love Jesus. You're his. And he's jealous for you. And he's going to take vengeance on those who harm you. Those who try to squash your faith. Those who seek to ruin your life. And on the second coming of Jesus, they will experience the wrath of God if prior to that they do not repent of their sin. And I need to say one more thing because it's relevant and it's important. Next month, 
Monisa and I will be in New Orleans attending the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you're going to hear about it in the news. Let me, let me just say, I want you to listen to this. Please, when you hear news accounts and you see things on Twitter and blogs and Facebook, please be wise enough and smart enough to not take at face value the validity, the accuracy, or the truth of what you read. Please don't be gullible because most of what you read is going to be half-truth and not the full truth. So please don't just automatically believe and react to what, everything you read, okay? And it, and it doesn't matter where the, what the source is. So show a little patience. But I bring this up because it's going to be in the news. And there's different things that will happen. One that really doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but it's really important is we will elect the president. Our current president of the convention is a pastor in Texas of a smaller church named Bart Barber who is a good man and doing a good job in trying to help us do the right thing. And I plan to vote for him. It's our tradition that whoever our president is is elected to a second term. They get, that's just tradition. But he's facing opposition. And I'm not voting for the opposition. I'm voting for him. I just want you to know, so Bart Barber. But here's the bigger thing. There will be recommendations and motions that come from our sex abuse task force. Started two years ago. How do we implement things to protect children, protect women, protect men from abusers, from predators? And one of those is how do we implement a national database? And you need to know about this because it's important. A place where the names of those who have abused people are housed and we can know that so that we don't mistakenly ever hire them on staff. Without that, that will happen. And there are some who for different reasons don't support that. I just want to say to you, it's being done by other denominations. It's being done by entities and institutions. There is a way to right, do it the right way. And, and I just want you to know, I am passionately supportive of those recommendations, of having that database. It is the only right thing to do if we are going to be righteous and protect God's children. There can be no excuses there can be no fear and there can be no backing down on this issue and I'm telling you up front for everyone to know I plan to vote for those recommendations and support them with every fiber of my being just want you to know that now that's the parenthetical sermon <laughs> wow all right, jealous, loyal, you know, God, God, what am I even preaching now? That got me, wow, got me wound up. I didn't, didn't see that coming. Um, God's loyalty means he, he, he wants to protect you. His, his jealousy wants to protect you and take vengeance on those who hurt you. And by the way, with the little kids, don't you remember Jesus saying, better, it's better for, you know, someone hurts, hurts one of those children. It's better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. If God 
God is going to protect and God is going to take vengeance, we should protect. Second thing about jealousy, though, it means not, not just that God wants to protect us and he's going to judge and punish those who hurt us, but it also means that God is loyal to us. God is devoted to us. And he wants us to be loyal to him, to be devoted to him. In, in, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel, the people of Judah would disobey God and worship idols and not obey God and all of that, the Old Testament prophets often referred to their sin as adultery. Because they, they were in a relationship with God and God was loyal to them. And every time they were unfaithful, just think about the word faithful and unfaithful grows out of the idea of relationship. And God is in a relationship with us. He was in a relationship with Israel and with Judah. And he said, I love you and I'm faithful to you. And when they weren't faithful to him, they committed spiritual adultery. Go back to Moses in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai and God gives the Ten Commandments. What was the first commandment? Don't have any other gods, right? No, no other gods. And what was the second commandment? No idols, no graven images. See, God is not going to be kind of loyal to you. And he doesn't want you to be kind of loyal to him. And whenever the Jewish people would worship other idols and they would do what we call syncretism in philosophy, which is you blend different philosophies, you blend different religions and kind of create your own. So they kind of worship the God of Israel and then they worship all these other little gods and religions and philosophies and God says, no, I don't share you with anybody. We don't have an open marriage. We don't have an open relationship. And God says, I'm going to be faithful to you and loyal to you, devoted to you. And I expect you to be loyal to me. And in the New Testament... We as the people of God, as the church, we, Jesus' followers, we are called the bride of Christ. There's that image again, that relationship. We are the bride of Christ. And on one occasion, Jesus was asked by somebody, Master, what, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember Jesus' answer? The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus loves us that way. What do you think Calvary was about? Complete loyalty and devotion, giving his everything for you and for me. And he says, love me. Not sorta, not kinda. Love me. Serve me. Be faithful to me. Walk with me. And so that's where I'm spending most of the message is just that first point that God's love, God's, God's anger, God's wrath, God's all of that grows out of this, this love and this holiness of God that, that he says, I care about you and, and I'm going to protect you. When somebody harms you, my judgment's coming. And I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm jealous for you. I'm going to be loyal to you. Be loyal to me. Now, the second thing about God's anger. And we won't spend as much time on these. God is slow to anger. And he's not impulsive. Look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. 
pretty straightforward. The Lord is slow to anger. In other words, he's not reactionary. He's not impulsive. He's not random in his anger. And I am so, so glad. He is slow to anger because he wants to give us time to wise up, grow up, repent of our sins and change. I'm thankful that God is not impulsive and even though he rightly could, he rightly could judge me the very moment I sin, I am glad God doesn't do that and is slow to anger because he's giving me time to get my act together. Aren't you thankful for that? It's giving us time to repent. He's, he's also slow to anger because he loves us. He loves you. And that's what love does. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And on and on, other verses talking about that. But I want you, just for the sake of time, look back in your text in Nahum chapter 1 at verse 2. The very last phrase of verse 2, he says that he, God, the Lord, reserves wrath for his enemy. And that Hebrew word translated reserves means two things. One, he stores it up. God is storing up his wrath. He's, he's, he's keeping it for a future day when it comes out. Like he stored it up for Assyria, and eventually it came out. He stores it up. But it also is the picture that God is guarding his wrath. He's guarding it, and he, he doesn't want it to escape. In other words, God, because he loves you, chooses, chooses to guard his wrath. And rather than letting it pour out instantaneously, pour out spontaneously, pour out randomly, God guards it, holds it back, and stores it up, giving you time to repent and find forgiveness. That's the mercy of God. That's the goodness of God. Because God could rightfully, the very moment you sin, say, okay, that's it. Judgment, wrath, anger. But because he loves us, he doesn't do that. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We would be ruined. We would be destroyed. We would be dead. If the holiness of God did not include the love of God that holds back his anger and wrath at our sin and stubbornness and darkness and rebellion, if it didn't hold that back and just poured it out all at once when we first deserved it. The love of God says, I'm giving you time. I'm giving you time. But he doesn't hold it back forever. He doesn't hold it back forever. In verse 3, in the middle of the verse, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Assyria, your day has come. For all of us, if we don't repent sooner or later, eventually, eventually, our day will come. And you need to know that. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Hear me. God's love, so real, so powerful, is not a shallow, 
sentimentality that says, oh, you're not so bad after all. It doesn't matter. God's love is powerful, but it's also holy. God's love is patient and sacrificial and kind. That's the cross. But his love is also holy and righteous. And at the second coming of Jesus, those who have not repented will experience his wrath and anger. On that day, there will be no holding it back. There will be no second chance. The day will come. And God's wrath is powerful because God is powerful. God is powerful, and so is his anger. Look at verse 3. That's the third point. God is powerful. So is his anger. In verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The strength of God, that word power there means that he's able to endure. God, God is so strong in his holiness and so strong in his love that he's able to guard his answer and store it up and not pour it all out at one time. It's the reason he's able to be slow to anger. And, I, and, and, and parents, sometimes it's hard for us to bite our tongue when our kids make us mad, right? But God is strong enough he can be patient but that word also means that God is strong enough to do and to act and to accomplish so that God is strong enough to one day punish to one day take action and in these verses of Nahum God's power is described in very picturesque language demonstrating his control over nature At the end of verse 3, the Bible says, In the whirlwind and storm is his way, and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. That image of God is, is a picture of God walking in the sky, and, and, and his, the clouds are the dust that his feet's kicking up. That's how powerful God is. The poetic language of verse 4, that he rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up the river with his simple the simple speaking of his voice, God can cause the Atlantic Ocean to become nothing but a, a muddy floor. He talks in, in, in verse 5, the mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. God can snap his finger and all the mountains on earth disappear. That's his power. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. God is powerful. And so is his anger. In Revelation chapter 6, the passage describing the events of the second coming of Jesus, those who are not ready for his second coming, those who have not repented, those who are living in disobedience, the Bible tells us in Revelation 6, they will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, and the Lamb is Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You can't escape it on your own. 
God is too powerful. And his anger is powerful. But there's hope. And there's good news. And this is the fourth and final point about God's anger. Is that God, listen to this. God is the only escape from the wrath of God. God is the only escape from the anger of God. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good. It's interesting. And all these verses about judgment and wrath and anger and so on, you have these, these little nuggets of hope. The Lord is slow to anger. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows, listen to this, he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows if you are his. The Bible says Jesus knows those who belong to him. He knows your name. I'm glad Jesus knows my name. I'm glad he knows that I am his. And and he says God is our stronghold, our stronghold in a day of trouble. If we take refuge in him, hope, a storm is coming. Judgment's coming. The wrath is coming. But there's a hiding place. It's in God. He's our stronghold. He's our refuge. More than 600 years after Nahum, there was a man. The Bible calls him the son of man, the son of God. Christos, the Christ, Jesus. And he hung on a cross. In that moment, all the wrath of God for sin was poured out on him not wrath for any sin Jesus committed not wrath for any wrong he did for he was sinless it was the wrath I deserved the wrath you deserved the anger of God at the sin of humanity and the cruelty of nations And all of it in that moment was emptied on him. He opened the gate. He stopped guarding the wrath. And it spilled out on Christ. And Jesus said this was the reason for which he was born, the reason he came. And when some followers tried to talk him out of going to the cross, he said, no. In his own anguish, when his heart was breaking at the thought of it, he said, with tears flowing from his eyes, your will be done. He loved you. He loved you. He loved you that much. And on that cross, Jesus became our stronghold. He became our refuge. When I was a teenager, I ran into that hiding place. I saw my sin 
And I saw the judgment that was rightfully mine when Jesus comes back. And I ran into the embrace of the one who was stretched out on that cross and clung to him. And he clung to me. And I'm safe. He's my security. He's my hiding place. He will be my refuge when I die. He will be my refuge when he comes back. He will be my refuge on the judgment day. He will be my security when wrath is poured out on humanity and the world. I'm glad I've got a hiding place. Is he your hiding place? 